Hello and welcome to High Tea Obsessed. I'm your host, Thomas Boomhauer, and today all my lovely, wonderful purveyors of the finest mink mittens out there, I have an incredibly mapley episode in store for all of you today. But first, be sure to follow the podcast on Instagram at high tea underscore obsessed underscore podcast and on Twitter at HiTO Podcast, and to drop those five-star ratings and reviews on the podcast platform of your choice, all of that stuff, if you haven't done so already. Be a huge help, make me look cool, make me feel good, and it's just a good way to stay connected, stay tuned into what's going on, and a good way to help me rise up the charts and, you know, drop some more listeners, which is cool, always appreciated. Today's episode is two days late, a little bit delayed, as you guys might have seen on Instagram, I posted a little bit like, hey, episodes delayed for reasons. Well, those reasons are I had a water filter issue and there was a beeping going on associated with that issue. And the beeping, not too, too terrible in real life listening to it. I did mostly drown it out, didn't really hear it unless I was like in the laundry room. But my mic, it's decent, it's pretty good, you know. Shout out my girlfriend for getting for me. Great mic. Does, it's pretty sensitive, so it kept picking up the beeping. Didn't work for podcasting, obviously, to have a annoying high-pitched beep in the background. So I figured I would wait till that thing was sorted and then get into it. So today's episode is a pretty good one, if I do say so myself. I feel like this season we've had a little bit of everything going on, right? We've talked about an early heist from the early 1900s when... Museums weren't super secure, right? They were kind of struggling. And that was the Mona Lisa heist. We've talked about a skyjacking or unsolved mystery where D.B. Cooper made off with $200,000. Con man turned safecracker turned British spy. Train robbery in the 1960s, in the 1960s. And some amazing heist movies. You know, it's been a pretty good season overall, I would say. But now, we're getting into something... Pretty, pretty, pretty nice. Something that I think is probably more in line with what people would conceive of when they hear the word heist. Like what pops in your head, what you're sort of imagining. The year is 1972. The target is the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts. The crew is small, tight-knit. The score? 18 paintings valued between 11 and 20 million U.S. dollars today. The perpetrators never found. That's pretty tight, right? Like, I'm excited. I hope you're excited. And without further ado, let's get rocking. Now, as I've told you guys before, my process for researching these heists, these tapers, these incidents, or just in general, I like to pull up the Wikipedia page, see what they have to say, see if it's worth getting more in depth, see if it's worth... Let's see if my interest is peaked. And if it is, I'll look at the sources from Wikipedia, search, like, look at, like, 10 to 20 sources from Google, try to read any, like, snippets from books or articles on them, like, scholarly articles if they have any. Now, this heist, not super famous for some reason, and I'm going to get into that a little bit later, but I did find a couple of sources, and one of them is CanadaArt.ca, because it's a Canadian website. 
And this website is a pretty baller. Like, the article on this is awesome. It's just, like, super well written and has a lot of good phrases. So I'm going to quote it several times throughout. And it's sort of like tagline subheading, if you will. goes like this. One of the world's greatest unsolved art thefts happened in Montreal in 1972. And its mystery continues. The theft happened September 4th, 1972. It was Labor Day. The same day Canada's hockey team won Game 2 against the USSR in the Summit Series. One is remembered in volumes. The other, barely at all. Now. As an American, when I read that, I have no idea. I'm like, which ones will have remembered? Did people forget about beating the USSR? I only know about Miracle and Ice beating the USSR. And so I assumed that the heist would be the one remembered. I didn't really know. But my people, my friends out there, that is how you start an article. Like, I'm instantly all in. And by the way, after doing the research, it seems like the heist is the thing that people don't remember, which is all the way nuts. The Montreal Museum of Fine Arts was robbed by three men shortly after midnight on the morning of September 4th, 1972. A man wearing climbing spurs climbed a tree on an adjacent property located between the museum and a neighboring church. From there, he gained access to the museum's roof and lowered a ladder to two accomplices who were waiting below. Once the trio were on the roof, they entered the building through a skylight which was being repaired at the time. Due to the repairs, the security alarm for this particular skylight was disabled. The robbers used a rope to descend from the rooftop to the floor. Because they used the skylight to access the museum, this heist is sometimes referred to as the skylight caper, which is a lot less clunky and a lot cooler sounding than the 1972 Montreal Museum of Fine Arts robbery, and so that's why I chose the skylight caper as the name for this episode, and when it comes up, typically gonna say skylight caper. It also just, like, sounds like a heist. Is that out of the line? Like, if you hear robbery, I feel like your next thought is it's sort of like jewelry or, like, a smash and grab. It's not some sophisticated type of thing, but the skylight tape, you're like, that's a heist. Anyway, these criminals weren't, like, super suave, sophisticated, don't believe in using guns, con man types. They were the heavily armed types of art thieves. Shortly after entering the museum, they encountered a security guard. And because he didn't comply with their demands in a way that they deemed satisfactory, one of the thieves fired two shots from his shotgun into the ceiling, which seems a little bit extreme to me. Now, there were two other guards working that night, and they came rushing, obviously, once they heard shots being fired in the museum, came to help out their boy. But they were overcome by the three robbers and beat up, tied up, and died before being left in a lecture hall. Now, according to the guards, they only saw two men with long hair wearing ski masks. One of these men spoke French, and the other spoke English. Remember, this is Montreal, the uh, Quebec part of Canada. So that's the French speaking. Uh, Both of the men that they saw were armed. They also reported hearing the voice of a third man who also spoke French, but they never saw him. For around the next half hour after getting the guards tied up, two of the thieves looted the museum while the other remained to watch the security guards. Now, apparently, the initial plan had been to leave the way they had entered, so they were going to use, like, make a pulley and lift the art out of the museum onto the roof and then take a ladder down or another pulley down. Seems like a weird plan. So this plan was scrapped for whatever reason, 
and they decided to leave out a side door. Unfortunately for them, an alarm sounded and they were forced to meet their escape more quickly than they planned. Now, there is some disparity over how they made their escape. And can I just say, like, for the record here, there's a weird thing I've noticed in a lot of these heists, where there's just, like, these weird random little disparities and things where the sources don't agree on some, like, pretty basic facts, you would think, like, how they made their getaway. So some, like most of the official sources from the time, say that they left using the museum's panel truck, which made sense because they stole 18 paintings and some other items that I'm going to get into later. However, some, including a famous Canadian art heist investigator, like art detective type guy, who, again, more on later, he's convinced that they escaped on foot which does not make a lot of sense to me. But, like I said, I'm going to get into it. However they left, once they left the museum, an hour passed before one of the guards was able to free himself. Once he did, he followed museum policy and phoned the museum's director of public relations. Now, normally he wanted to be the go-to person, but the museum's president, director, and security director were all on vacation. And the director of public relations, Bill Banty, told him to call the police. The police arrived shortly thereafter, and Bill Banty arrived five minutes after them. Around 3 a.m., Banty and another museum employee named Ruth Jackson, who was curator of decorative arts, compiled a list and a rough estimation of the valuation of the missing pieces. All told, the robbers had made off with 18 paintings, and 39 pieces of jewelry. Most famously and importantly, a Rembrandt, which had been in the museum's collection, was amongst the stolen items. Now, amongst the stat items apparently also intended to be stolen were additional works by Rembrandt and some by Picasso, so they could have gone off with an even bigger haul if they hadn't gotten spooked by the alarm. Fortunately for the museum, the museum had been for uh, fortunately for the museum the robbers had been forced to leave about half of their intended loot behind now given the time that it took police to arrive they probably could have loaded up the truck a little bit more but you know that's just the way of the road baby sometimes she does sometimes she doesn't now like i said because they stole 18 paintings and 39 pieces of jewelry i find it hard to believe that three people made off with that undetected in the middle of a city now, I'm not sure what Montreal nightlife was like in 1972, but three dudes leaving a museum with alarms blaring, carrying six paintings and 13-ish pieces of jewelry each, sounds pretty noticeable to me. Even if the paintings were, like, cut off their frames and, like, loose canvas and rolled up, I, it's just, like, it's still pretty cumbersome. I don't know. To me, it just seems far-fetched, but, like, I'm not... A guy who studied this case for 10 years, so I don't know. Anyway, Ruth Jackson, the uh, curator, said, There was a sea of broken frames and backings and smashed showcases. Upstairs in the room where the major theft took place, it was just devastation. They cleaned it out completely. For the second pile, they'd gone around selecting from various rooms. I shudder when I think what might have been if they hadn't opened that door. With what they proposed to remove, if they'd been undisturbed, it was just like they meant a general clear-out of the museum. Another witness who had worked at the museum described the scene as one of wartime desolation. So, they smashed things up pretty good. They left it wrecked. 
took a ton of stuff and planned to take even more. Now, despite this, like the destruction and how smashed and like everything wasn't the fact that they had grabbed a ton of stuff, police and apparently other museum officials have said that they were a discerning group of thieves. So again, we have this sort of disagreement between the evidence and some takes on aspects of the crime. Because for my part, based on a few days of reading the secondhand accounts, it seems like they weren't super discerning, because if they were, they'd probably have pri- prioritized getting the Rembrandts and Picassos into the van and like, loaded, or just like in the initial haul. If you're on a plot, you get the most expensive stuff first, I would assume. And also like the general destruction and the fact that she said they tried to pick it clean. I think they were just kind of grabbing everything they could. Regardless, the thieves made off with around $2 million worth of paintings, which is worth a little over $13 million today. The articles I read in the Wikipedia page, none of that specified whether the value was given in Canadian or U.S. dollars. I assumed U.S. because most sources I used weren't Canadian-specific, but I could be off. But it's like around that figure. A few hours after the theft, Banty held a press conference attended by local and national journalists from radio daily newspapers and national and international wire services such as the Canadian Press, CP, and Associated Press, AP. They did show quite discriminating taste, he told reporters, though as far as the objects are concerned, they could do with more art and historical training. See? I Like, how does that make sense? They show quite discriminating taste, but they could do with more art and historical training. They don't seem to add up to me. Anyway, he also would say in their haste to leave, the thieves had left behind another Rembrandt, as well as works by El Greco, Picasso, and Tintoretto that they could easily have taken. The news of the theft and the names and images of the stolen paintings were published on the front pages of newspapers throughout Canada and the United States the following day. And that was, you know, try to flood the image similar to the Mona Lisa thing. Like, we want everyone to know what paintings were stolen, make it hard to move, make it hard for these guys to go to ground, make it hard for them to smuggle them across borders, that sort of thing. Despite the immediate press coverage, uh, the story would quickly leave the headlines, however, because the following day, the Munich Massacre happened over during the Olympics and dominated the press coverage, obviously. So the robbers at this point, they're away, they're stock clean, and police are beginning their investigation. They're looking into it. One of the first things they do is alert Interpol, the International Police Agency, which I didn't know this until this season. I thought they were pretty much just in Europe, but they're up to stuff all over the place. And the Canadian-American border was pretty much immediately secured to prevent the stolen art from crossing the border. Looking at the museum specifically, the police photographed the carnage left by the thieves and began sweeping for clues. They didn't find any fingerprints or anything like that, and they didn't find any of the weapons that were used in the heist. So they didn't leave anything behind, no evidence to go on. And again, similar to the train robbery, we don't have that huge database of fingerprints, so even if there was one, it probably wouldn't have been as easy to match until someone was caught. So the police were left with very little in the way of leads, And basically, all they had definitively were that there were three guys involved. Two, the two that were seen, were short, and two of the three spoke French, one of them spoke English. From there, 
we get into speculation. Since the robbers seemed to know that the skylight was being repaired and that in turn meant that the alarm for the skylight would be off, some investigators believed that this indicated it was an inside job and that some members of museum staff or perhaps the workers repairing the skylight might be responsible for the crime. However, after police interviews, all were cleared, and it was determined the information could have been very possibly procured from elsewhere. A visitor could have overheard it, someone talking about it while visiting, uh, an employee might have overheard, an employee might have been overheard, rather, talking about it while out on the town, you know, getting a few drinks, and really anything, you know, anything could have happened to get the information out there. There was also someone apparently watching the museum roof, uh, a man or two. There's differing accounts. Uh, someone was allegedly watching the museum roof in the days before the heist, but again, the police were like, that could be anything, that could be literally nothing. Someone could have misseen something, that could be a dumb lead. It could be someone watching birds, like, who knows. And there's no way of, like, tracking down someone from that little bit of information anyway. But another potential lead emerged in the form of another heist, which took place a few days before the Skylight Caper. Earlier in Labor Day weekend, another art heist was carried out about 20 miles away. Again, in this case, the culprits were three men, two speaking French and one English, and again, there was a similar, like, they beat up the gardener, tied him up, and then did the crime. And again, it was another pretty ostentatious cinematic heist. So in this one, about $50,000 in art was stolen from the home of a Mrs. Agnes Meldrum, who was an art collector, though her great-nephew, and later interviewed about this, would note that she collected what she liked, not necessarily what was expensive or popular. And that was because some accounts said there was a Rembrandt recovered amongst her artwork when it was recovered, but that was not the case. Anyway, the culprits of this crime had climbed 600 feet up a steep bluff from a motorboat on the Lake of Two Mountains to access the house, and then apparently climbed back down with the stolen art, which is pretty impressive because I'm confused how they climbed 600 feet down with stolen art. But apparently they did. Despite these apparent similarities, it was later concluded that the two cases were unrelated because of the differences in scale, which again, I'm not an art crimes investigator, but I'm not sure that that adds up. Because like, let's picture this, I'm a robber. I hear a rich lady has a ton of cool paintings. So I rob them. I get two buddies, I'm like, hey, let's rob this lady quick. We do it. it. Turns out the store, not exactly what we were hoping for. And like, I guess like, so say that did turn out to be fancy. Like say there wasn't actually in Rembrandt and all of a sudden it was a $200,000 heist again, or like a $2 million heist again instantly, like, then is it on the same scale and we treat them the same way as investigators? I don't know. Like, I think it was probably just a holiday weekend art crime spree. Then again, you know, so I've said I'm no experts, but I've seen every episode of White Collar twice, so, you know, maybe I am an expert. Some of the aspects of the police investigation are kind of hard to pin down. They didn't make a lot of headway with the investigation. They botched a recovery effort, and because other stories dominated the presses, there wasn't that same pressure to solve the case as others that I've talked about have gotten. Also, the police files on this case are largely closed to the public still, because it's still considered an open case. 
despite the lack of leads, lack of evidence, all that stuff, the police did have some suspects. So, sort of at this time, and my Canadian history isn't great, or even good really, if we want to be honest, but about this time, in Quebec, there was some resentment going on between the English-speaking elite and the French-speaking general populace. We also had some Quebecois independence movements, which, just hell yeah, hell yeah, brother. More power to you. Free Quebec. And I think a lot of this stuff is starting to happen around this time in the early 70s and gain steam from here, but I'm not 100% sure on that. So if any Canadian or Quebecois listeners are out there and want to let me know, email the show, hightobsessed at gmail.com, or just let me know on the socials. Tell me about French, or tell me about Canadian history. I'm all in. Anyway, one way that this resentment between the English-speaking Anglophile elites and the French-speaking populace manifested was in the museum itself. So students from a local art college in Montreal called École des Beaux Arts de Montreal. I took French in high school. It's rusty. It's very rusty. École des Beaux Arts. (laughs) Yeah, I messed it up worse. Uh, anyway, the School of Fine Arts in Montreal, where, so in English, it's the School of Fine Arts in Montreal, and students from there were frequent visitors to the museum, which made sense, you know, in movies and shows, art students are always going to museums to reproduce the art, do their own tates influenced by the art, and I'm not sure if it happened in real life, but I've seen it in white collar at least a bunch, so to me, this shuts out. Anyway, these art students are checking out the museum a bunch. You know, they're doing their thing, no big deal really, except the museum heads, Anglophiles that they are, had been kicking the students out of the museum early before it closed so that the museum staff could make and enjoy tea. Which, absolutely unreal, 100% out of line if you ask me. And this, understandably, in my opinion, led to some resentment amongst the students. And I guess they are kind of plausible suspects, right? I don't think there were only three students that were going to the museum, but maybe the idea was that like a small section of them, a small inner group, were responsible. And if we go with theory that they were discerning in their theft, it kind of works, right? We have art students that are going to know what kind of art to target. They had an excuse to chase the museum. They're there doing their art projects, whatever. And they were there enough to likely glean some of the insider information we're talking about. The police felt so strongly about them as suspects that they put five of this group under 24-hour-a-day surveillance. Eventually, unable to gather any evidence, the surveillance was dropped, and they aren't believed to have been involved at this time. This could just be because they didn't have any other leads, so the police were feeling particularly zealous. But I question whether the police were French-speaking or English, I don't know. But it is interesting that they were so gung-ho about the students, with like a pretty big leap in logic to get to their being involved. Another theory was that organized crime could have been involved with the hijacking, for a few reasons. Um, it could have been that one of Montreal's big games was hoping to use the art money, art as money to purchase drugs, or like a small-time guy or gal was hoping to move up by doing so, you know. And it could have been like organized crime doing it on behalf of another bigger, like, crime family. We don't really know. Obviously, it's all speculation. 
Despite their inability to track down or even come up with any suspects, the police would get a break just a few days after the heist when one of the robbers called with a ransom demand. Now, apparently this is a relatively common motive behind art theft. It's hard to move once it's stolen because it gets so hot that a lot of fences aren't going to want to deal with it, and people aren't really keen to display stolen art. So it kind of makes sense if you're a criminal to sell it back to whoever you stole it from, because you'd only been able to make a fraction of what it was worth anyway, so you might as well get that fraction when you can. So the first call came within a few days of the heist. The caller was described as having a nasally European-sounding voice. The caller instructed the museum to send someone to a phone booth near McGill University at Sherbrooke and Metcalf. There, the museum security director answered a call, which told him to pick up a discarded cigarette pack from the ground nearby. Inside, he found a pendant, which was one of the missing pieces of jewelry from the museum. Communication between the thieves and the museum continued by phone and by mail. A brown envelope was received October 26, 1972, and it contained either one snapshot, snapshot, one snapshot, or multiple snapshots, according to some accounts, of the stolen artwork all laid out together. So it was just proof of uh, that they had it, and it wasn't a scam. The envelope was marked Port of Montreal, which was maybe a sign that the West End Gain, an Irish crime group, active both then and today, was responsible. It also could have been a bluff, and like making them think that organized crime was involved. Regardless, the thieves asked for $500,000 for the return of the stolen goods. Then they reduced the demand to $250,000, which is interesting to me. Maybe they were exploring other avenues for some of the paintings, or maybe they were desperate for any money they could get. in 1972 would be about $1.6 million today, which is not bad at all. It's even split three to five ways. And the the drop in ransom demand, to me, again, suggests that they were relatively disorganized crime, especially with the chaos criminals, especially with the chaos they left inside, and makes me think that they maybe weren't the most discerning art thieves. Anyway... Then museum director David Giles Tarter, who is deceased now, suggested that the group surrender a painting to prove that they were still in their possession. So eventually Tarter was instructed to check a locker at the rail station in Dare Central. The museum's security director was sent to investigate and found a painting titled Landscape with Vehicles and Cattle by Jan Brudel the Elder. Jan Brudel, maybe? I know almost nothing about art, so... Might have butchered that name. Anyway, shortly after, Tartar arranged an exchange of cash for an additional painting. It was going to be a setup, though, with an undercover cop being the middleman, and he would be the one sent to the meeting place with the money. However, a police cruiser, unaware of the operation, drove by the rendezvous point, and it stared off the thieves, who told the museum the next day, very angry, about the trap. Tartar did not hear from them for months. A final ransom demand was made in 1973, when a museum board member received communications from someone who said they had information about the paintings. Ultimately, the museum agreed to pay $10,000 for the return of the painting with an insurance agent sort of acting like a middleman. He dropped off the money in a specified location. However, when police combed the building for the supposedly returned art, nothing was found. 
and that $10,000 was also never recovered, so all in all, bad job by the museum, and probably bad job by the police too. According to reports, negotiations broke down from there, and nothing substantial has really happened with the case since. Bill Banty, uh, who was the public relations director, has said of the case, everyone forgot about the theft except for the insurance companies. Like a death in the family, you have to let it drop. A potential contributor to this is that a potential contributor to this forgetfulness is that since the insurance paid the premiums for the lost pieces to the museum, the pieces are now owned technically by the various insurers. So it's not exactly sexy in terms of storytelling, no disrespect to insurance companies, but no one's really out here rooting for them to get their property returned, really. Like, are we like, oh yeah, let's get Dyke to these paintings? No, we want the museum to get the painting. But, according to a modern-day museum representative, since the museum was paid by the insurance companies, and like the, the art is no longer their property, it's the property of those companies, it's unlikely the museum would ever become the home of these paintings again, because they wouldn't be able to afford even a discounted like price from the insurance companies for the paintings. So I guess that leaves us like support the arts people. As of today, no more of the paintings have been recovered. And there aren't really any great leads out there or any good suspects to latch onto or look up, get involved in, you know? Because of everything that happened at the time and how the museum operated and the police's tight lid on the case, it is largely forgotten, even in Canada. Which is sort of a departure from the other heists we've been talking about lately. There are a few people who haven't given up hope, however. One of them is a famous Canadian detective who specialized in art crimes by the name of Alain LeCourcier. Now retired, LeCourcier has been the subject of both a book and documentary in Canada titled Le, Le Colombo de l'Art, which, if my high school friend serves me right, is the Colombo of Art. Now, LeCourcier wasn't amongst the original investigators of the case way back in 1972. But after reviewing the files of the investigators and putting in a lot of work on it, he has some theory on the case and some interesting leads. Now he is the one behind the theory that the robbers made off on foot, which again, because I cannot make this clear enough, doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Throughout the 1990s, Le Corsier worked on the Skylight Caper case on the side because he was just interested in it, you know, he was into it. His superiors made it clear that he was not to waste any time or resources on it. But he is considered the only person who has actually reviewed the police case file that is also willing to talk about it. According to him, at the time, two investigators worked on the case and then closed the dossier after just a year. He said they don't have any clues, any information, any suspects. And in his estimation, nobody has really investigated this case at all. Le Corsier doesn't believe that the Tebetois nationalists were involved, nor that the students who were under surveillance were involved. However, there is one student who hadn't been placed under surveillance that stands out to him. According to Le Corsier, a student with the alias Smith, pretty original, is interesting and potentially involved in the case somehow. Apparently, he met this Smith character, and the pair got to talking about art theft, and eventually the 1972 Skylight Taper was brought up. Allegedly, Smith knew a lot about the case, knew more than had been publicly released, maybe even knew more than the police. 
So Latourcier sets a trap and mentions the steel rope that the intruders used to drop into the museum from the skylight. Now Smith corrected him and said, no, 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 it was a nylon rope. And Smith was right. And I guess that wasn't public knowledge. And some versions of the story have Smith correcting the color of the rope. So Latourcier was like, it was a yellow rope. And the guy was like, nah, it was gray. And Smith, who was, again, he was an art student. And apparently not a famous artist, he was a carpenter, collected fancy cars and other automobile paraphernalia. Particularly, he was a fan of early French racing stuff. He also loved art and was bait on Quebec art history. He was also the owner of a large carpentry shop and Le Torcier found it odd that he was able to afford the lifestyle he had, including the expensive trinkets. I guess it was just like, you know, starving artist, how does he have this nice house, all this cool stuff? And when he pressed Smith on it, he said, you know, my family's super rich, but that did not satisfy the detective. In 2007, while filming the Radio Canada documentary, the detective offered Smith $2 million to tell him where in Smith's garden he'd have to date to find the paintings. And Smith laughed and invited the film crew inside for coffee, apparently to show them no paintings here. Smith has since passed away, but Le Corsier believes he could have been involved in the heist, but he doesn't think he was the mastermind behind it, nor that he had the paintings. But there isn't any real evidence of this, it's just a gut feeling from the Colombo of Art. Now, in 2010, Smith was interviewed by a journalist in Quebec, and he told them that he wasn't involved in the theft, but that the professors at the university were behind it. And I haven't been able to find any information on that. But by 2010, they were likely long dead. Um, Latourcier believes that the West End gang, or the Mafia, are responsible for the heist. And that it could have been fenced via the Hells Angels in Quebec, but that ultimately, most likely, organized crime was involved in some way, and that the art was exchanged for guns, money, or drugs. I'm going to quote the Canada Art article again for a second. So where does that leave Montreal's missing paintings? According to Le Corsier, they're likely in Mexico or Central America or maybe South America. Maybe 20 years ago, he said, I saw a picture of a house in Colombia. It was a living room and I saw a stolen painting from France. I asked my boss if we could have a warrant and Interpol told me, no, the police there work for him. It's probably all the stolen paintings around the world that decorate those houses. The theory sounded like a cliche to me a stereotype of criminal Latin America, but only one of us had spent a decade investigating art crime, and it is what he contended. Now, no longer quoting, a retired FBI agent who had recovered $330 million in stolen art during his career kind of disputes this. He wasn't responding directly to the art, to what Latourcier said, but I'm going to quote the article again. Robert Whitman said, Generally, the people who perpetrate art thefts on the scale of the MMFA, Montreal Museum of Fine Art, are better criminals than business people. They don't know what they don't know that the true art in any art heist is not the stealing, it's the selling. And that's because there's really no black market in stolen paintings, he said. There are no end buyers. He's never heard of a dope dealer who will give away cocaine, which has solid street value, for boosted paintings, which have none. In three decades of investigations, Whitman has never encountered a true doctor no type collector, 
the wildly rich amoral aesthete, aesthete who orders up stolen paintings for his private enjoyment, though he has played him undercover. Which, again, not quoting anymore. Huge flats, right? And again, that leaves us as something of a dead end, and I think it is fair to say we simply don't know what happened to the paintings and the jewelry, we don't know who stole them or why, and we don't know if they got more than $10,000 for their efforts. However, the unknown stretches even further than that. Since the theft, some have come forward to dispute the valuation of the paintings and even the attributions to the paintings, so like who painted them. Given how little we know, how little the police are willing to share, and how few people are still around who remember the case, let alone who were involved of it, involved in it, it is highly unlikely that we will get any answers. The best we can hope for is probably that some of the stolen art turns up in a second-hand auction and is ultimately recovered, but then again, only the insurance companies win in that scenario. But that's all I got for you guys this week. Pretty quick episode, quick hitter out here for you. Uh, be sure to tune back in next week for a discussion of the movie Logan Lucky, featuring the guys from Words and Whiskey. And as always, if you did what you're hearing, be sure to drop a 5-star rating and review on the podcast platform of your choice. Be sure to tell a friend about the podcast, spread it around, spread the love, spread the cheer, spread the joy. And be sure to follow the show on Instagram at high underscore obsessed underscore podcast and on Twitter at high podcast. So, until next time. That was terrible. So, until next time, stay safe, my lovely friends. Peace out. <laughs>